Hello, my dear listeners. It's been a little while. And, uh, and though there is absolutely no excuse, nay, no defense, my friends, for the pause in production over the last few months, especially, especially the middle of the series, a very, very interesting series, no less. Let's see. Thank you. So, I am going to finish this series on mating soon, and then I'm going to move on to some pretty interesting topics. I realize interesting is a vague, apologize if that's too vague, but I don't want to give it away. All I'm going to say is I've got very cool episodes in the works, so stay tuned, people. Now, in the meantime, I've got this short little piece of Animal Kingdom gossip. And unfortunately, we're going to have to compromise our integrity for, for this one because we're using clickbait internet articles as our sources. So, sit back, relax, because you should probably be reading a book instead. We live in an age based on science and technology. Right, so actually, quick sidebar, for your own safety and hygiene, I would not advise eating food with weird consistencies during this episode, as you may find it mentally hard to separate certain aspects of animal mating with your choice of caloric intake. I only have your best interests in mind. Um, that's probably not actually true, but it feels good to say. So, anyway, let's, um, sorry, sound person, person, uh, continue with the, with the opening, please. You, do, do your thing. Formidable technological powers. And if we don't understand it, by we I mean the general public, if it's something that, oh, I'm not good at that, I don't know anything about it, then who is making all the decisions about science and technology that uh, are going to determine what kind of future our children live in? We've really got to start at the earliest levels with having a broader view of what education really can and should be. Because I find that with the young people we have, we are able to motivate them. Science is all around us. It's in us. The knowledge of science is power. It gives you an understanding of the forces of nature. It's not even about how much science you know. It's about how science literature Alright everyone, welcome back to the show. It's nice to be able to say that again. So, as briefly mentioned, today's imposter is just kind of a fun little piece within the current series on mating. Hence my full disclosure that the sources used for this episode are less empirical and peer-reviewed than our regular episodes. In fact, I don't think I opened Google Scholar once. Rather just did me some good old-fashioned surfing of the internet. That said, I will still, as always, post all the links to this episode sources on the blog site so you can all do your own further research. Find the blog at http colon forward slash slash theimposterpodcast.wordpress.com. So let's get into a few of these suckers, no pun intended, with the number one, and I quote, outrageous fact about animal sex, 
according to totally not clickbait or sensationalized BuzzFeed, is the corkscrew-shaped penis of the male duck. For those that have never seen it, you should probably head on over to the YouTube and check it out now. I will wait for this one. No, I won't. I lied. The awkward, wiggly, and spirally shape of the duck penis does have its purposes. I bet you want to see it now. Just, just look it up. It's alright. The weird shape allows male ducks a few seconds extra to really plug their duck jelly into the female ducks. Duck jelly, of course, being the technical term for semen, as well as my college band name. Now, let me tell you, a few seconds is often all that it takes. Actually, 0.5 to 0.8 of a second, to be exact. Now that said, female ducks have found ways to counteract this barbed corkscrew design in a sort of evolutionary arms race of mating. When a male duck engages in copulation, his penis goes from 0 to 60 by exploding straight into the female duck's vagina in a counterclockwise direction. However, to the surprise of these horny male waterfowl, the female duck vagina is designed in a clockwise corkscrew filled with lots of nooks and crannies, resulting in a reduced rate of success for fertilization. Now, one might think that penises that are longer might be able to work their way around these countering twists and turns. You know, they've got a bit of extra slack. But in addition to a vaginal maze, female ducks that are not in the mood to screw around will wrestle violently with the male ducks, contracting their vaginal muscles as a means to stop forced copulation from going any further. I'd also like to say just... As a quick aside, when this podcast has grown a little bit more and we start selling merchandise, I'm definitely going to design a wine bottle opener in the shape of a duck penis. I feel like that would just sell, you know? You know what I'm saying? It opens bottles in under a second. And it's true. And that's nature. We're just learning from nature. All right. Anyway, sorry. I'm spitballing here, you know? I'm spitballing. Okay. Anyway, back to the barbs found on cat penises. I mentioned before that one reason is to prolong the mounting time males can squeeze out before a female will run away. Another reason for the barbs is to scrape away any competing male's sperm in order to maximize the chances of their genes being passed on. If you knew this already and you think you're ahead of the game, I'm going to up the ante for you. Cats aren't the only animals to do this. In fact, there's a bunch of animals from large to small that use this tactic. Take, for example, the innocent damselfly. According to this same BuzzFeed article, the male damselfly has a little spoon-like mechanism attached to its penis that's primary function is to scoop out competing male sperm, like scooping out melted ice cream. Moral of the story, start enrolling your sperm in ninja classes. Because, you know, if you're a damselfly, that's, that's, that's intense right there, you know? Now, this next mating behavior is of the sharper variety, bringing safety and regulations into the fold. Ah, the tail of the mighty Erethizondo. 
better known as the porcupine. The mating behavior of these lonesome creatures is one of adventure, pain, and time constraints. This female North American porcupine has a very tight mating schedule. She only becomes fertile for 8 to 12 hours once in a year. When those precious hours for mating arrive, the female begins to urinate all around town. And I mean all around town. And this is in order to release some pheromones into the air to attract nearby males. As the female's pheromones don't specifically attract just one male, a handful of male porcupines will show up and, as you might imagine, they will begin to duke it out. Now, Aldris Rose, a leading expert in porcupine behavior, paints a harrowing picture of what the aftermath of male porcupine brawl for dominance looks like. After one night of wrestling pricks, sorry, I had to, Rose painted a picture of the aftermath as being laced with 1,474 quills strewn everywhere. After being analyzed, the quills were identified to have come from three different males. The quills weren't just laying about either. They were laden with bite marks indicating that these males really went for each other, to the extent actually of ripping out their competitors' quills with their teeth. I'd like to just point out to those of you not well versed in porcupine anatomy that their quills are designed in a way that once embedded in the skin, tiny tiny barbs on the actual quills continue to push the quills further into your skin, making them incredibly painful to take out as they continue to get stuck the deeper and deeper they get. So using your teeth to take quills out is pretty badass, if I say so myself. So once the fight for the dominant male has been determined, the real trial begins. You see, these armored rodents do not have the typical mammal-mounting mating behavior, as the quills pose a danger not only to potential predators, but also to other porcupines. So to help remember their mating behavior, I've come up with the three P's of porcupine mating. I will trademark this later. Persuasion, pissing, and penetration. And I mean with a penis, not a quill, of course, hopefully. Now, as if fighting other horny male porcupines isn't enough, the male persuades the female that he is a suitable mate by climbing up the tree that she is in, perching lower down in the tree, and waiting astutely until the time for shaboingin is right. Okay, so that's our persuasion. Now, for the last two Ps, pissing and penetration, you'll have to bear with me as I indulge in an ill-fitted biology-themed V for Vendetta monologue. <clears throat> Proceeding permissible procreation, prickly porcupine porking principally propagates peeing powerfully, prompting prolonged pairing penetrating procedures, producing petite porcupettes. Now, what I was trying to convey was that essentially, after the watchful stalking period is done, the male will get up on his hind legs and begin to approach the female with a raging boner and will subsequently soak her with a golden shower that would make both R. Kelly 
and the 45th president quite proud. Now, I know what you're thinking. Amir, is there a scientific term I can use for golden showers to impress my friends? And the answer is yes, of course, you science-orientated pervert. Researchers called this behavior when a male will urinate on a female, which the pheromones from the urine will then signal to the female to ovulate. They call this the Witten effect. Ooh. Ah. So only after this pee-pee party will the female then show her hindquarters for the male to then enter, if you will, and commence copulation. Now, if you think finding a comfortable position for your arm during couples spooning is awkward, imagine being a porcupine. That's all I have to say. Finally, after coitus has been completed, and often several times, I might add, either the male or the female will audibly throw in the towel and call it quits. A mucousy sheath, sometimes known as a mating plug, forms over the female's vulva to encapsulate the sperm and probably, I'm sure, or I can imagine at least, to deter other competing males from mating with the female again. And with that, that's kind of the bulk of porcupine mating. I will say though, if you really want to get into the dark web, Google male porcupine genitalia, because that has fun written all over it. I'm just gonna, I'll say that as well. You know, drop the mic. All right, my dear listeners, that is all the time we have for today, unfortunately. Uh, like I said earlier, I include all my sources for this episode on the blog site, which can once again be found at http colon forward slash slash theimposterpodcast.wordpress.com. I've also included a few extra links to some very fun articles listing many fascinating and obscure mating facts found throughout the natural world. So please do check those out if you're still hungry for some more info. I will also encourage anyone who's really interested to read studies and peer-reviewed research. All you need to do is go to Google Scholar, which you can get to by just typing Google Scholar into Google. There you go. And search a subject you find intriguing. Simple as that. And you will be rewarded. Trust me. Okay, and last but not least, I just want to say how grateful I am for all your continued support. It means a great deal, and I really do appreciate it. And instead of showing support through monetary donations, if you like the podcast, please show us that via Facebook likes and shares, which are always and tremendously appreciated. So, you can also follow me on Twitter at AnotherFogel, that's F-O-G-E-L, and subscribe to the podcast on the iTunes Music Store, keyword, Imposter Podcast. We got a lot of really good episodes coming up, like I said, so stay tuned, everyone. But until then, thanks for listening, and we will see you next time on The Imposter. So.